I gotta organize this pitch and putt day. You wanna come to pitch and putt? Yeah. I thought yeah, so. That'd be fun. I love pitch and putt. One day. I'll Aren't do we supposed that. to go for golf? Well, yeah. I've it's, I've compromised off a of pitch and putt because it's more approachable. Yeah, oh. I can't play golf. Golf is like quite. A... But we were going to have have a business meeting on a golf course. <laughs> I still want to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think pitch and putt is more. Who are you people? We we're people who we want were, to be someone else. We wanted to. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to do. Yeah, we're going to do a, a business meeting on a um, golf course because that's where you have business meetings. Don't you know this? Don't you know? Mm-hmm. We're not real businessmen. You can't done business not, on the golf. That's course. right. That's right. With a doctor, you have to have a doctor there too, <laughs> and he's got to be dressed in like plaid, like light plaid. I don't. Yeah, no, you're right. I don't or make tartans. the rules. I don't make the rules. Just squares, just... <laughs> any form of square, you fit in a it. Square golf. pattern, yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. So I will organize that. Mm. Can you do business on a pitch and putt course? I no, think you can. No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, maybe you can. Maybe you can. <laughs> I think that's where the real deals are done. Wait, wait. No, maybe you, you gotta can. You've got to be fast. <laughs> maybe the pitch and putt course is for where like like smaller business deals go go down. Like, for instance, like deals between freelancers. All right. Yeah. 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 Maybe that's where that's that's <laughs> good thinking, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> we will play real golf one day, but I think you won't like it. It's a very frustrating game. I know I don't like it. (laughs) Hey, then. (laughs) So did we figure out what we're going to talk about? Those. Your topics. Let's do them all. Let's just blast through. You want to do all of the topics on the list. Rapid Fire Mobile Couch. Special episode. Special episode. Rapid Fire Mobile Couch. All right. We've got 10 minutes per topic. That sounds cool. I like this. We should do a Rapid Fire intro. Hey, welcome to Mobile Couch, episode 31. Jake, Daniel, me. Go. First, follow up. So first of all, we have email from Arby. Uh, in regards to talking about a new language last fortnight in the episode that we had with um, Ash Farrow. So I think Arby's point was, uh, there were a few points. One, I don't think he was convinced that a higher level language could have the same performance characteristics as Objective-C. And for his use of Objective-C, he's doing writing applications where performance is really crucial. And right. He's sort of pushing the limits of Objective-C as it is in terms of uh, memory access and speed. And so going higher level would be slower. I think that's a that's a very valid point. Um, I guess my response to that would be those situations, I think, are in the minority on iOS, on modern iOS devices. Certainly if we do end up with something that's wearable, like a watch or a earring or a ring or some more miniaturized iOS device. I really don't see how we're going to get a ring, but okay. Anyway, if we get something smaller, perhaps there will be even greater need to write highly performant code. See, maybe, maybe in in at the beginning, right? But I don't necessarily think that that's the case. Exactly. So that was going to be my point, that this is uh, probably, certainly on the devices we've got today, it's a minority of apps where performance is a real issue. Right. Um. And I think you've got to be thinking about potential future languages with a view to the future. Say five or ten years from now, are we still going to be as performance constrained as today? Right. Or will we be in a situation where we could actually use uh, a language with higher level features without really noticing? The why, why can't we have both? Yeah, it, like, that was going to be my second point. Oh, good. Okay. Mm. But you could make it. Okay. Well, Microsoft supports what? Four languages? C++, C Sharp, Visual Basic. Maybe three. Oh, JavaScript.net, I think, is one. Is that right? This anyway, works. they support a whole pile that you can use, and you choose the one that works best for your situation. 
I think with Microsoft, um, if you're developing .NET apps, they're all running on top of the the common language yeah. runtime, so they all are similarly high level in the sense that they're not compiled directly to machine code. Okay. Yep. Um, but on a, there's no saying that if Apple were to adopt a new language, which I don't think they're going to, so this is all a bit academic. Uh, but there would be no reason to suggest you couldn't continue to write Objective C. Uh, or C++ where you wanted to, where you felt the need. Um, so I'm just think, I just think that saying that certain applications require a lower level language because of need to be highly performant, I don't think is a good enough reason to say, let's not think about a potential higher level language just for the other applications that could use them. Right. And I think it's important to actually to actually have this these sort of discussions because not necessarily because, oh, let's replace it immediately let's do it right now um because i mean for, for starters that's not going to be happening i i very much doubt that they're going to get up on stage at this year's dub dub and say by the way we're replacing objective c with php <laughs> come to our php lab with all your questions uh that's yeah you know that's what, gonna be uh, my running joke i think i think if if apple were to to look at a new language that's the way they would do it it would well, yeah, be top secret until it wasn't. In. It it may be it, that may be so, but I think given the like given the vast um, changes that they've made to Objective C and made with things like Arc and the literals and stuff like that, yeah. they've been making a lot of of quite heavy changes to Objective C as it is, mm. and I just I don't see it happening that they change the language after implementing all of those things to something that doesn't. Re- Require any of them? Yeah, look, I, I agree. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. But um, the I think we should also address Arby's other point, which was um, I, I think Arby objects a little bit to this idea of complaining about a language without offering a kind of an alternative or or offering a solution. And I think, in some respects, that's fair enough. I, I think you know where, I guess all sitting here complaining about things we don't like, you know, whinging and saying, this is what I want, I want it better. Um, whereas really, you know, we, we're enjoying a fantastic development environment, tools, a great market for our apps, you know, and, and we're not the ones that would be doing the work to make it better. We're just sort of asking that someone else do. Sure. But in that sort of situation, though, I think it's important. Um, I actually read an article that was by Mark Edwards previous guest hi mark and it was about design to be fair um he was talking about how he had a a mentor of sorts like this this guy would do would just try new things not or get or get rather him to try new things and you know get his, his feedback and kind of deviate from the norm a little bit to try and find what was better because that's how we we evolve things we don't evolve th- things by sticking to them we evolve things by kind of finding new ways of doing things, finding new methods, finding new tools, finding new whatevers. Just because we're not the ones that are putting this into place doesn't mean we're not the ones that are kind of that are making it happen. Basically what I'm trying to say is that by having the the discussion and by having the intellectual arguments about the whole thing, it's kind of planting the seeds for the future when we will end up changing and we'll look back and 
people like that like there's that kind of there's already been this discussion about what would be better what could we do better what can we have like what hmm. can we learn from um and that, i think that's that's a very important part of this whole discussion that we're having not and that it's not necessarily because it's going to be replaced it's because it's it's because we need to keep looking to the future for when it will inevitably be replaced yeah i agree i i i could see Abby's point but i'm not sure i agree with his point I, my view is that um I feel okay about questioning without having the answers myself. Right. And I think part of that is looking to other languages and other technologies and other platforms where things are a bit different and saying, I want me some of that. And speaking of which, C Sharp. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice segue. Yeah. Nice. Did you see that? I don't, I, didn't, I don't believe I would ever be saying this about C Sharp, but I want me some of that. C sharp. <laughs> See, I don't really. I have no knowledge of C sharp. I don't. I don't understand C sharp. It's awesome. It's really good. C sharp is like Microsoft's Java. Is that fair? I think it was heavily inspired by Java. So is C sharp the basis for .dot net? Uh, so .dot net mm. is um, the marketing term for a bunch of technologies. Um, when it was first released, .NET was like everything from Microsoft's version of their web services, like when Apple was calling it Mobile Me. Microsoft had a thing called .dot net. Oh, right. And then they had like .NET Passport, which was like a single sign-on thing. And mm-hmm. Anyway, I think they've dropped using it for anything other than their APIs now. Okay. And .NET basically describes the set of libraries that you'd use to write. So .NET is kind of like Cocoa. Yeah, it's Microsoft's Cocoa. Um, unlike Cocoa, where you really only can write Cocoa apps in a single language, .NET has this thing called a common language runtime where it's basically like a virtual machine, like Java. Right. But um, sitting on top of it, you can write your apps in a variety of languages, one of which is C-sharp. And so that's what what Ben was saying before, where you can write in things like JavaScript and other stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, visual Basic, which I think is horrible. Uh, Good to learn. I started with Visual Basic. Yeah, there you go. You're right. Wow. It's, horrib- it's horrible. Wow. Yeah. Uh, F-sharp, a functional language. There's, there's a whole heap of them. Um, C-sharp's the one I'm most familiar with. And... Um, I think it was heavily inspired by Java. So it's an object-oriented language, uh, classical inheritance, uh, strongly typed, has namespaces, has garbage collection, memory management. Am I missing any of the major features? Yeah, unlike Java, it doesn't break on every exception. So you can let exceptions disappear if you want to. There you go. Whereas a Java app would force you to catch them. Yep. So why are we bringing it up then? Right, so uh, I've been doing a bit of iOS development using Xamarin, which right. is the idea we've talked about before. Yeah. We have. Um, and so using some C Sharp, and it's got some f- awesome language features. One that I first heard about on uh, the episode of Debug Podcast, where um, Miguel Diagaza, who was the creator of Mono, and then which became Xamarin. Wasn't it Mono Touch? Yeah, Mono and then Mono Touch. So basically, Mono the Touch o- is like open source Touch. implementation of .NET. Yeah, Mono is .NET, but yeah. open-sourced. Yeah. But and then, then Mono Touch is the iOS. Right, so it's like the difference between Cocoa and Cocoa Touch. Yeah? Yes. yes. Yeah. And then Following Mono Touch on. became Xamarin. Anyway, on that podcast, Miguel was telling uh, Guy English about some of the features of C Sharp, and I then had to try it out. And perhaps the coolest feature is this thing called uh, Async Await. And it just kind of breaks my head a little bit. Basically, what it lets you do is write asynchronous code... Uh, as if you were writing normal procedural code. Yeah. So, you know, you call a method 
and store the result in a variable, you know. Um, I don't know. And then use the variable on the next line. Uh, yeah, exactly. But As if it was synchronous code. Right. Whoa. Which, which is kind of crazy. So that you could have this, so, you know, your normal method code would be like a string name equals get the name, and that's a method. Uh, if that's synchronous, that's fine. That's just what you're used to. And then if you want to do something asynchronous, you're probably used to having to write like a callback, a completion handler, use blocks or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this lets you do is basically you annotate the methods that you want to run asynchronously with the keyword async uh, before the method declaration, definition. Uh, and then when you call it, you use the keyword await. So you go await string name equals go get the name. Now it's an asynchronous method. And as Ben said, yeah, it just runs and it runs asynchronously. Uh, so execution kind of pauses but it doesn't pause it returns right so the thread that you're you don't block the main thread it just uh it goes off into the background and does something so basically it's basically doing the job of spawning a new thread type thing and doing the work and then coming back yeah so it's basically it's basically doing what you would do with a completion handler yeah and blocks um, and stuff yeah. and blocks in that it's running asynchronously mm-hmm. um the main thread's not blocked when it returns, it comes back and continues to enjoy the scope that it had previously. Um, but it's doing it sort of all, the compiler does it all for you uh, so that your code basically just looks like normal code, one method call after the next method call after the next. Which is really good for solving blockception, where if you've got asynchronous calls that need to come after each other, like you need to load, I don't know, a user ID. And then once you have that user ID, you can use that to get their avatar or something. Right. And then once you have that, you can get something else. Could you not use this to to actually load the avatar as well? Like, you could, yeah. So you, yeah. you have two awaits. Await user ID, and then in the next line, you await the avatar get and pass in the user ID as if it was just all waiting there. And I don't know if I missed this. You can do this on any method just by... So So when you... Methods that you write yourself, yeah. if you want them to be able to be called in this manner, right. you have to you have put to... the keyword async at the right. start of the method definition okay um and other api methods that you're calling into have to have been written with that so you have to kind of define it the the same way that you would define like a a static method you have to actually point out that it's it's yeah that it's an async Mm -hmm. but something that xamarin has done is that they've got async versions of a lot of the ios standard methods apis um, apis so things that would normally be done as completion handlers you can do using await and async oh nice Um, it's pretty cool Hmm. it kind of uh it's funny because, uh, you know, in learning a little bit of C-sharp, I'm trying to learn the best practices and trying to learn a little bit about, I guess, the practices that have emerged in that community, thinking that I might then apply those ideas to the most code that I write, which is Objective-C. And so things like uh, our last episode, we heard about Reactive Cocoa being inspired by um, .NET's Reactive Extensions. Um, I was looking at, oh, okay, I want to use Reactive Extensions in .NET to do some stuff so I might better understand Reactive Cocoa. Right. Except that it turns out it looks like people are moving a bit past reactive extensions because of this async await stuff. It's like sort of makes writing asynchronous code so trivially simple that why would you confuse things by having a whole heap of chained functions Hmm. when you could just have a simple couple of method calls that are executed asynchronously but read like synchronous code. Much neater. Your code looks really neat. I can imagine that because you'd have because I mean part of the problem with um with blocks is that you end up with blocks inside of blocks inside of blocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And same with the functional stuff. It's I find it really hard to read because you have yeah. 
yeah, yeah. You, you you chain new functions together, and either by having functions inside of functions inside of functions, or by writing your functions and passing references to them around, which is I find it hard to then go back and read. Whereas this reads just like kind of in my my head standard code. And the other thing I think would be nice about it is that it, it's, I mean, it, it, we've already said that it's cleaner, but it, it's also it would also be somewhat prettier than blocks. Blocks are kind of ugly. Yeah, you end up with this tabbed thing. Yeah, it's reaching across your twenty-seven inch screen. Yeah, by the end can, of it, and then and there's the whole thing where you never remember how do you have to write like how do you, how do you define a the block syntax? and yeah. all the different kinds of all the different syntaxes for the different yeah, um, yeah block spots. syntax or lambda syntax in C sharp is also much neater than Objective C. But it's still it's still more confusing. The the only problem I have with this is it's perhaps too easy. Yeah, like I've it, been wondering. I, that. I'm wondering if it completely hides the whole asynchronous nature of the code from Are we just going like to end up in deadlocks because right. we didn't put any thought into it? Yeah, you've just got a couple of keywords and suddenly it's all just handled for you. It'll and be it's like, kind um, of like... I don't know. It's I think it's one of these things where... where um, like it's like with anything, you you have to still put the thought into it. Like people can write crappy code with with blocks. I mean, it does that doesn't that doesn't just because you know they see that it's asynchronous doesn't mean they don't write really bad code. Yeah. Um. I think it's just the same thing. Like if you're a good developer and you're putting thought into your products, you're gonna make good products. Yeah. Regardless of what the, about I'm certainly a novice when it comes to C sharp development, and I worry that I'm making that I don't need to think about it properly. I don't need to think it through. I can just use these magic keywords uh, and the compiler will do all of the asynchronicity for me. And it just kind of seems a little bit too magical, but it's, I'm running with it. It's kind of like when Dispatch Async came out. It was suddenly so easy to do something. Later. chuck something on another thread. Who cares? No thought required there. And then you like don't sync it back to the main thread or suddenly you're doing UI stuff on another thread and yeah. it just all falls apart. Or you dispatch sync. To the main thread, yeah, which is like a very common gotcha. I still kind of stand stand by what I said. Like, I I still think that if you're a good developer, you'll still write good code, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a smart developer. Because God knows I'm not a smart developer. Um, I sat here all of last episode, basically not speaking because I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> I um, think that, that, but that's, that's not like, an issue of being smart or otherwise. It's just whether you read the book or not. Sure. Right. Well. Yeah, but the thing is, is that like my my skills lie in other areas. Um, but the thing is, is that it doesn't take like it doesn't take me knowing all about reactive cocoa and being like the smartest guy in the room in order to write be a good developer and write yeah. good code. Yeah. All it takes is for for me to have the forethought or the the thought that I should uh, I should be spending time making sure that I am actually writing good code, regardless of whether whether or not yeah I'm yeah. you know. I think you're right. I think good developers will be able to use this tool well. I just worry that, um, and I'm putting myself in this camp, that perhaps a less able developer uh, might not realize the mistakes they're making because it's all too easy. Yeah. But uh, it is certainly pretty cool. And and it has opened my eyes. So it's, you know, going back, looping back to our original discussion here, seeing what's possible in another technology in another environment sort of makes me think, wow, what are we missing? Like, what yeah you know what innovations are we going to see come to iOS in the future that are going to be as awesome as this and i'm sure there will be some and at the same time we kind of have to look backwards 
because we've still got to support a lot of the older devices and the older software at this point in time. Although I don't necessarily know about in the coming months because we've got iOS 8 coming out probably. Is this a segue? This is a segue. We're talking about supporting both iOS 7 and 6 simultaneously. <laughs> Pretty I good. I like you that you know where Pretty I was going. Good. Have you guys done that much? Yeah, I've done it one time. And it made me never want to do it again. I'm actually in the process of doing an update for Multiplex, and I've chosen, partly because it's Multiplex and I can can do so, um, I've chosen to disregard iOS 6. And in fact, I'm never going to support iOS 6 again. Yeah, I would like to do that too. Unfortunately, I'm working on a project at the moment that started as an iOS 6 project that hasn't been finished yet. Yeah. (laughs) So you don't have the option of just letting the users download the old version because there, there is no old version. No. And we can't can't drop six. So I've had to do a little bit of, yeah. So why can't you drop six? Uh, the client. Because we signed a contract saying we would support six. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> well, now that you've logicked me out of it. Uh, no. I, I also think that, the, that this particular app, um, the client's keen for it to be a as widely available as possible. Uh, so talking about operating, different operating systems as well as legacy devices and legacy operating systems. And Okay. Uh, I mean, obviously, you have a, you have to do it. It's not your really your choice. But given that we've got iOS 8 on the horizon, do you really think that, like, is, it, is this the sort of thing where you would still normally be uh, supporting iOS 6 if you had the choice? No. I wouldn't support iOS 6 if I had the choice on this. I, I would certainly recommend to all my clients that 7, that I think it's worthwhile targeting the current and the one previous generally. Okay. But the, you've got to think hard about that. I mean, it depends on the app. It depends on who you're wanting to use it. People adopt new versions of iOS really, really quickly. And often new versions of iOS bring incredible technological advances that make developing apps so much easier. So I think there's always a good argument for saying just target the latest because... Well, especially now that, like like Ben was mentioning before, now that we can basically rely on on the App Store providing the older versions as long as they run, you can... And as long as they exist, right? If you're talking about a new project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're you're talking about a new project, well, like, yeah, sure, then the last last couple of versions... Um, if you feel the need to look, I think I mean I think that you'd be hard pressed to justify the extra effort to target older OSs if it was about sort of an economic argument. But um, in my case, a lot of my work's for government clients, and they've got a responsibility to provide all citizens with access to services. Sure. Um, and so there's it's harder for them to make the argument that uh, you know, oh well, let's forget about the people not running the latest OS because um. Well, they can't really. It's not a. It's not a. That that would be kind of akin to let's target. Let's let's not worry about targeting people who can't see our our website. That they don't matter. Yeah, it would be, it would be <laughs> akin to that. Uh, um, but so, so, okay. So in in this, so given that you've got this situation where you need to target iOS six as well, walk us through it. Um, well, thankfully, it hasn't been quite as painful as it might have been, and I think this is probably because I'm not embracing iOS 7 as fully as I might if I wasn't also trying to target 6 at the same time. So I think that right. that's kind of the starting point is um, in order to target both 6 and 7, I've made the decision that um, or we collectively have made the decision that the 7 version isn't going to, is going to be a minimal 
seven version, if that makes any sense. Okay. Uh, that it's it's hopefully going to fit on the platform and make sense, but that it's not sort of um, completely rethought for iOS seven. Right, and I don't necessarily think that you have to do that. I mean, there are certain situations where, and given that I've been doing a lot of like moving stuff over to iOS seven with multiplex. Um, there's certainly a lot of changes that have been made that can kind of um, mess up interfaces in various ways. Um, I mean, there's a whole like library support thing as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's some pretty simple things that I was really worried about, um, mm-hmm. but that turned out to be not so hard. So what? Like um, what? So things like uh, the navigation bars and toolbars. The definition of tint color yeah. has changed, right? Yes, because the, so previously they were like the tint color was for the actual bar, and now it's for the items in the bar. Exactly, mm. that's right. But thankfully, you can just basically conditional your code. So I found in the Apple documentation somewhere uh, the expression um, "taking the floor of NS Foundation version number," which is the version of the foundation framework in the current environment. Which would be like 7.1 at this point. Right. And checking, comparing it to a known value like NS foundation version number iOS 6.1, which is a which is a constant. Right. Um, and that lets you basically say, you know, if, the, if I'm running on iOS uh, 6 or earlier, um, then use this definition of tint color. Otherwise, if I'm running on something later than that, Right. Use the other definition. Yeah, and watch out for color. not actually calling the new one on iOS 6 because that right. got me the first time. You just type it thinking, I don't know what I was thinking. I just typed it to change the color of the nav bar. Yeah. And then when you go to test it on 6, it's just crashing because yep. you're calling a method that doesn't exist. Exactly. So you got to make sure that you don't call it. Um, and there are other things that, uh, that you can call safely uh, to change the behavior of things. So the other was um, iOS 7 has changed. By default, view controllers automatically have their content view scrolled inset. Is so, that yeah? Right? So there's a no, well, it's not scrolled. It's there's a separate property. Um, there's a UI edge insets property um, called content inset, which insets the content. Doesn't scroll it. Just insets. It. There's also yeah. I've been just, dealing with that quite a just lot. Scroll view <laughs> and so thankfully, if you set the your navigation bar. So that it's not translucent, it'll stop doing that. It'll stop doing that. Yeah, okay. it goes and back to iOS and 6. And that's safe way. to do on iOS 6. So it's safe. So I've just got this line of code here self dot navigation controller dot navigation bar dot translucent equals no. On iOS 6, uh, it doesn't really do anything. Well, because there's, there is a translucent bar on iOS 6. Yeah. There's that black kind of translucent bar that used to be on like the media right. viewers and stuff. So it's safe. To say so you can still you're use not it. translucent. Yep. And iOS 7, having a non-translucent nav bar um, will change that default inset behavior. So you know, iOS 6 actually it didn't do anything. It did nothing because yeah. the translucent bar was actually a bar style, not a not the translucent property. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. It's like they saw this coming. <laughs> um, and I think that's kind of that's kind of it for me. I've got just those couple of little things. Um, a few places where I'm using those um, NS Foundation sort of version numbers to check. So I have separate code for iOS 6 and 7 um, to style things ever so slightly differently. Mm. Um, the only other gotcha, and it really got me, and I sunk 
I don't know, I feel embarrassed. I think it was multiple days, maybe two days, to trying to figure out what was going on. Is uh, that the behavior of core data has changed, the default behavior? Yeah, so now SQLite is um, journaled by default. Is that the right word for it? Don't know. It has a write-ahead log. I don't so, know what. I, I I know that journaled is like a thing with like um like file systems because you have like HFS and HFS plus. <laughs> <laughs> Drink. Jeez, I I, um, I hope that uh, John Syracuse does not listen to this podcast. But, I think it's probably safe to say that he doesn't. But um, I'm fairly certain he doesn't. Uh, that's if okay. he does, he's going to call in, <laughs> complain about our lack of knowledge of file systems. So there's a tech note. We'll put it in the show notes. It's a new, new default journaling mode for core data SQLite stores in iOS 7 and OS 10 Mavericks. So SQLite has always supported journaling, which basically lets you write changes to your store in a separate file than the store itself. So rather than modifying your SQLite data store sort of uh, in real time, it uses this thing called write-ahead logging where it writes the changes to a separate file so that if something happens part of the way through writing changes, you don't corrupt your data store. Right. So it's kind of like when you write to a file atomically. Yeah, exactly. Where it's it basically writes a, writes a separate file and then basically copies the, copies it into place. Yeah. Or moves it into place. So by default on iOS 7, if you do nothing, um, all of your core data will now be using write-ahead logging. And what that means is the actual data you write to your store is not saved in your .sqlite file. It's saved in a separate file that sits alongside it in the file system. Huh. Um, and I happened to be doing something weird with core data where I was copying my core data store. I was mm. like moving it, you know, out the way and replacing it with another one. Um, and I switched from iOS 6 to 7 and like, where has all my data gone? Why is the store always empty? Um, and it turns out, it's because I was copying it and I wasn't allowing for the write-ahead log, which actually contains all the data. To actually write to the file. Yep. Right. So um, when you initialize your core data store, you can specify uh, an option, which you can switch back to not using write-ahead logging, which was my quick fix. It's probably not a great fix because uh, I think write-ahead logging is a good default because it seems like a, a safer way to write your data. Um, yeah, and probably changing, like copying your file in and out is probably not the best thing in the world to be doing. Yeah, I think there are cases when it's okay. Like when you're not using right journaling. Head yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'm sure there are ways to do it to, and accommodate journaling at the same time. But yeah, um, so that was something that got me as well. But other than that, I haven't had too many gotchas. The um, real problem is supporting the changing controls like supporting a picker view from iOS 7 and iOS 6. The sixth one comes in from the bottom. The seventh one, you meant to open up a table view. And yeah, that's just terrible. Yeah. So I won't tell you how to do it because we have to move on. But that's where it really goes. I think the segmented control changed height as well and all sorts of annoying things like that. So, I mean, if it's changing height, there's probably ways that you can get around that, right? Yeah. Auto layout. Right. Here we go. Auto layout is your friend. Whoa. Except that it was horrible in six. Also, I hate all that. <laughs> Can you make me but like it? But it was good. It was a good segue. That's that's yeah. for sure. Can you make me like it, Jake? Because you use auto layout. I do use auto layout, and I have come to like it. So I don't know if I can conv- convert you. I think the only way to come to like it is to use it, and use it in ways where you're saving yourself lots and lots of code. So UI labels, 
where a label may span one or more lines and then you've got another label that might span one or more lines and then you've got another label that might span one or more lines and then you've got like some scrolling content in a scroll view. Yeah? Yep. Okay. So if you had to do that without auto layout, I find that slightly painful, right? Because you had to set the number of lines for each of your labels to zero, set their line break style to wrap words, and then you would programmatically query what the height of the first label ended up being. And then shift the second label. And then shift the frame of the second label so that it started below... And then do that over and over and over again until yeah. you've run out, like until you've finished right. laying everything out. So auto layout, there's no code, zero code. Right. You just put your constraints in. It's magical. And it does it for you. Yep. You, you seem to have this interesting thing where you, you sometimes something is too magical for you, but yes. other times it's just magical enough. Exactly. You've, you've picked it up. I do have because he still has thing. to put constraints in. And so it's not that magical because he's like defining the magic. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it's completely orthogonal to my code, right? It's com- the layout and the logic are set entirely separate. So it's basically contained magic. It's magic that's happening completely in the UI. You know what I mean? Like it's not like I- I'm now no longer writing any layout code. So it's not like my layout code that I've handwritten interacts with magical code that someone else is writing for me. It's that the layout's all done through the storyboards and auto layout constraints. And then my code just deals with non-layout issues. So it's kind of like a nice separation. Whereas the magic that I, I scares me is where I still kind of have to interact with it or I might, I might accidentally trip over on it, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So are there instances where you don't use auto layout? Like you go back to doing it the old old-fashioned way because of whatever reason? Yes, definitely. And the, like when I can't freaking get auto layout to do the right thing. Because there are times where I just, it beats me. Or you drop a view on your nib and suddenly all your constraints are gone. No. So I uh, Xcode 5 is so much better. Did it fix that? Yes. Xcode okay. 4, auto layout was unusable. Uh, absolutely unusable. Because it wasn't even just dropping a view. You'd like go through and painstakingly create the exact <laughs> right constraints. And then you'd move something, anything on your view by a single pixel. And Xcode would go, oh, you want me to redo all your constraints for you? Okay. Yeah. And then, like, your 50 handcrafted constraints would be completely blown away. And Xcode 4 was horrible with, with the auto layout. And so, just to clarify, you're talking about doing this in, in storyboards, right? Not not in code. Yes. You right. can do auto layout in code, but yes, you know how much I love storyboards. I know you love storyboards. <laughs> I hate storyboards. Therefore, I probably could use auto layout if I if I felt the need to. I haven't yet. I haven't made the can jump. Can write that crazy constraint language. Auto yeah. layout. Well, it's just like the it's like a visual visual language. It just like it's like a yeah, like, like a code version of storyboard. Yeah. yeah, I can't figure it out. I like storyboards, but I can't stand that visual constraint language. Just See, I just like we were talking about before with trying out other languages and stuff. I've just seen the light. That's one thing Android does so much better. It just works like kind of like HTML, where things just lay out, yeah, like HTML. So if a line goes too long, the next line underneath it will just go down itself. Yeah, so right. it's, it's it's and not... if you don't want that to happen, you make it float, and that works too. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so it, because because Android then works like a like a um, flow layout. Yeah, is a flow is a flow layout. Well, you got different types of layouts, but yes, one of but, them is a flow layout. But then you can but. Uh, Objective C is pretty much everything is absolutely positioned. Yes. Well, 
I just relatively think, pos- no, absolutely positioned based on its parent. I just think auto layout just mm. sounds like an over-engineered solution to me. Like it's really cool, but I think they put too much thought into it when it could have just been like to be fair, to be fair, I think that this this is a, this is a sort of a situation where they kind of had to make it w- still continue to work the same way that it has worked, so that other things wouldn't break. Yeah, true. Um, and then Auto Layout has kind of had to fill the gaps while also not breaking right. the old so method of doing. Auto things. Layout lets you still set; it will set the frames for you based on constraints yep. you specify, instead of actually, yeah, and you, and the result is the frames are still set. Right, so basically, what frames are still set on Android. It's just make, you can pull the it's frame. making it happen for you. Well, sure, you can pull the frame, and like in HTML, you can pull the width of any element, height of any element, where it's positioned based on its parent. But it's still because it's a flow layout. That's not like that's managed separately to to what the way that you would manage an absolutely positioned one. Hmm. Cool. Thing is, you can mix auto layout and not. So yes, you ask that's me what if, I always I, do. if I don't use right. it in some cases. Yeah, so in some cases I don't use it. In a storyboard, there's a simple single tick box, use auto layout, yes or no. Um, but if you've just got one part of your app where you don't want to use auto layout because, like me, you can't it beats you with a specific <laughs> combination of beats things me you every want to time. try and achieve, um, then you can just pull that out into its own view and untick the use auto layout box on that view um, and then, you know, stick that view programmatically stick that view into your view hierarchy when you need to. And then write some code to make it kind of everything adjust for it or No, you put that you put a view in the storyboard, like a blank view. Yeah. And then you add Switch your nib as, as a, a sub view to that view. Oh, okay. That's that's what I do. Yeah. And it works. <laughs> I don't like Storyboards are great, aren't they? <laughs> um I've actually got and this is probably horrible, right? But um in one project I'm working on, I've got two versions of the same view at different sizes um, because I found the process of trying to figure out what to shrink and how to move things around to, to accommodate an iPhone 4 screen versus an iPhone 5 screen. So, like, I spent so long, like, so long because I, I I wanted auto layout to do it, right? Like, I wanted to do it the right way. I'm like, I know I can do this in auto layout. It's just a matter of thinking about this and thinking, okay, I want this area to shrink a little bit and I want this area to shrink a little bit and then I want this area to stay the same and, you know, I could kind of think it through. Um, and yet I completely failed to actually achieve that in auto layout. And in the end, I just went, you know what? I'm just going to have two views and I'm going to programmatically determine what screen size I'm running on and load the right one. Um, and I deleted all the code that I'd spent about a week trying to write and <laughs> got it done in like an hour. <laughs> so I feel I feel horrible and dirty and terrible that this like I've actually got two views that are the same but laid out differently for the different screen sizes. Um but pragmatically like it was so quick. So I'm kind yeah. of wouldn't I, it have been easier just to like to go into the view controller and write the code to re- lay out the view based on the size of the screen? There were lots of subviews, lots and lots of nested subviews uh-huh. and they were already uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm not ready to turn my I'm, back on the visual <laughs> layout, but I no, was so much willing faster. to turn my back on auto layout in that example and just sort of say, look, I'll have these two. Of course, I see the downside. It's terrible. If I want to change things, I've got to remember to change it in both places. It's yes. awful. There are many downsides. You wouldn't get away with that on Android because you'd be writing like 50 nibs oh, right. for all the different screen sizes. Yeah, of course. Well, yes, storyboards have kind of changed that, haven't they? Like 
bringing together all the different nibs that we used to have to. Are run. we going to get? Are we going to get a new size great. screen in a few? Yes. Yeah, we are. I agree. And then all of this, I don't think I'll have a choice. I'll yeah. be auto laying and, and auto laying out everything like that. Pragmatic slash hack that I got to of pulling having two views with the same thing content for different screen sizes. Uh, I never plan to do again, right? Like that was a maybe a one-off, famous last words. <laughs> but so I think sort of planning, like what I want to do and the approach I try and take now is to plan for auto layout from the outset. Yeah. So, um, you know, the project I was talking about was when I started doing on Xcode 4, so I hadn't used auto layout a lot because uh, it was incredibly painful. And then I switched to Xcode 5 and started using it all over the place. But there was a couple of areas where I just struggled. Um, but certainly new projects, I like try and give myself the discipline of uh, starting with auto layout and just doing things like testing it in the four and five. Yeah, that time. button is pretty good in the storyboard editor. Yeah. Beats, and just seeing. beats coding. There's and a little just, button you can push and it resizes the view without having to run your thing, see if it worked, simulator. quit. Oh, open the four simulator now, run it, wait. Speaking of dropping older things, I wish I could drop iPhone 4. Soon. Soon. Maybe it won't get eight, and then you'll have an excuse to say. Yeah, but then I'm still going to have to support the five and whatever the six. The other thing is, is that if you're not creating an iPad specific um, layout, then it uses the iPhone four's ratio, right? Mm. Mm. Which is kind of important for yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I'd certainly encourage people to look at auto layout again if you if you gave up after how horrible it was in Xcode four. Seems better. The nice thing about it is you only have to specify the constraints you want to specify. Like mm. it will automatically add. I still run into the duplicate constraint thing. Like you think you've got it and you run it and then it crashes at runtime for over constrained. Yeah. Um. The the nice thing is it, you can also just edit. Like you can select constraints. Yeah. And go in and see what properties are set to them. And another little tip is you can um expose your constraints to your code if you want to. Um, so yeah, got, that's really cool. I do like that. Yeah. I've got one example where I've got a... I, um, I don't think I'd do anything but expose them to my code. Yeah, okay. You just do them <laughs> programmatically. Um, so I've got one where I've got like a, a, a audio player and I want to have a progress bar to show you how much how far you are through an audio track. Sure. Uh, I'm doing that entirely using constraints. So I've got... And using like an IB outlet, right? Yeah. So I've got like a view, just, just a view with a different background color to my other view. Um, and I've got a constraint saying its left edge should be zero pixels from the left and its bottom edge should be zero pixels from the bottom. And it should be a certain height. And then I've got a constraint for its right edge. Um, and that constraint I've added an IB outlet to, so I've exposed it to my code. And then in my um, code that runs whenever the playback position changes, I just change the uh, the value for that rightmost constraint. Um, so it changes the how far that little shaded region is across the screen. Magic. Works nicely. It is magic. It's magical. The kind of magic I like. I could say it's magical. Yes. We mm. probably talked about audio layout way too long. What's our next topic? Our next topic is magical record. Oh. Which is why I was oh, trying to go segue. there. You broke it. You broke I it. I think Sorry. it still worked. Ugh. So I tried out magical record after, I don't know how many episodes ago, we said we did some core data and... I didn't really get why you would need a library for it because I thought it was relatively easy enough already. Sure. I'm kind of still there. I don't quite understand what I think, Magical Record gives me. I think it just removes a whole pile of boilerplate. Like it, if you go hmm. file new whatever project and you tick users auto layout, your app delegate is just... You mean just, users core data. 
Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, We're on the next topic. Ah, remember. Yes. So anyway, your app delegate is just filled with setup code. Yeah, uh, a lot of setup code, not just the like few yeah, lines. Because you've got like you've got methods there to create the the um the the model and like to you got the context, the persistent model. store coordinator, yeah, the and the what's the third one? There's three parts to core data. The persistent store. Oh yes, the persistent. <laughs> <Duh. laughs> Anyway, magical records one line, which is magical records set up core data. It is right. Whoa! The thing is, is that it is what it is called. It's, it's magical. magical. And very magic. It's very Ruby esque. Yeah. The the thing I, I've actually used it recently as well. I put it into GIF wrapped. Um, after we after the same, we got the same feedback. I think was from Russell. It was from Russell Shifty Jelly. Um, and so I put it into GIF wrapped, and so GIF wrapped is currently running. It doesn't. It doesn't use it. Doesn't use Cordata for a lot. It basically uses Cordata as like a almost a caching system for the for the like the social views and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It, the problem, the, the thing that I found, I, I found was that if something went wrong, it, <laughs> it was it was difficult to track it down. I found I found it difficult to track it down. That is, I think it's at least good that it's open source, so you can step through it. Right, but- I, I'm kind of used to that coming from Cocos 2D. When when things went wrong, I would just step through Cocos D and then I would find it. Mm. So I I think that the, the the problem with that is I think the same thing with with all things magical. Yeah, is that like I don't I shouldn't have to walk through that. Like it's it's one thing to kind of like have a knowledge of your own, of the code that you've written, and a whole other thing to have a knowledge of a library that you've mm-hmm. like that you've. Started and also, using. I guess the reason Core Data has those different classes in it is because potentially you might want to use them differently. So you might have more than one managed object context. But Magical Records supports all of that. There you go. Okay, so you've addressed that. Because that's a concern that I have. Have you ever tried to put core data on another thread? I have, and it's kind of It's horrible. You just like think, oh, it can't be that hard. And then you do it, and it will work three out of four times. And then every now and then it just crashes, and you're like, what? What's going on here? And it's yeah, because core data is not thread safe. Yeah, and so it will work most of the time. And then so long just... as you make sure that you're only ever accessing it from the thread you've put it on, and you're never crossing your yeah. So the, that would be why you would create another context because yeah. you want a context on another thread. And also, so I have never done this in core data because I sort of say I said that you may theoretically in practice most people just use the boilerplate that Apple gives you, mm. and I think it's kind of that's the I think boilerplate like that like code file templates is kind of like the worst form of reuse ever. Yeah, it it's is. Like, because basically it's the same. And I hate the fact that app delegate and a whole heap of the, you know, you go file new, whatever, comes with a whole heap of code kind of pre-written for you. Kind of like documentation. It's like saying this is, you know, if, if subclass of view controller or a subclass. Table view controller. Yeah, yeah table view controller. A, um, I end up deleting like, It's kind of handy for the first time you've ever fired up Xcode. After that, it's kind of like I don't want code in my classes unless it's actually doing something. I feel like you can can you can you change those templates? Yeah, at I'm all? sure you can. Yes, but you I can. just yeah, I don't think it's officially supported. But you can just go; they're just text files, so you can just go and edit. You them. can just go change. But them. it's kind of weird that like yeah, you tick that user's core data box, and the result of ticking it is that you get a bunch of code chucked in your app delegate for you. And I don't um, even think it's a good place to put it. A lot yeah, of it you not, don't use it. Some yeah. of it's cop- some of it's commented out. So, so it, I can understand, like in practice, people just stick with it. Like they 
basically, and I do the same. I have a core data stack. It's one stack. Mm -hmm. It's the standard core data stuff. And if Magical Record makes it easier to set that up for me, that's awesome. But the thing I worry a little bit about is that theory of, um, and I've never done it in core data, but I did it in uh, web objects, where you could have nested editing contexts. Can you have nested managed object contexts? I think you can, but I've never done it, so I can't really comment. So the I've theory, seen the word nested in the documentation. Right? So the theory in web objects, at least, was of, so editing context is the web objects version of managed object context. And the idea of nesting them was that you could um, kind of group together a bunch of changes to your managed objects that belonged together and either do them, persist them, or roll them back kind of as a unit. Mm -hmm. So you you might have like a multi-stage shopping cart or something. So you'd have a, a editing context for all of the stuff you're fetching in order to display, and then you'd start a checkout process, and you'd create a new nested editing context for that checkout process. So it would kind of continue to to have access to all of the objects you'd fetched in the parent context, so things like products and mm-hmm. whatever. But it would the objects that you created in that nested context were local to it, so like your shopping basket. Or whatever, um, and so then if you got part of the way through and you decided you wanted to throw it away, you could just revert the changes to your nested context, and it would only revert those ones, not ones necessarily to the parent yeah. context. I'm pretty sure you can, but I've never had to do it. So yeah, cool. can't. So confirm. I've never, I've also never had to do it in core data. So I'm just wondering if that's a concept that actually even exists, even exists, or if it does, if it makes sense to exist. Like, I think, um, I think most people would do things kind of a, a different way like he, he, you would just basically revert like actually manually revert do the reversions yourself or right or uh, core data supports uh undo redo so you could probably use that yeah yeah and i certainly i think seem to have much simpler interactions with my use of core data mm. on ios than i did with yeah like the, the thing is the thing is is that uh, um as magical as i find magical record and i'm probably where i'm going to be pulling it out of um, uh, gift wrapped only because really? it's yeah well it's a bit overkill I think and I think core data itself is a bit overkill for yes. what I'm wanting to use it for you should check out Mantle um, but th- that being said I think that core data in many ways is also overkill um, in in how in how flexible it tries to be like mm-hmm. there like uh, like you said like there is so many people that would just use the the, the boilerplate and I know that. Like that's pretty much how I learned mm. core data in the first place. So, um, you know, but just by using the boilerplate and then deviating only as much as I needed to, yeah. and in that sort of a situation, then surely the boilerplate could be reduced to something like magical record. Yeah. Um, but that being said, like I said, I, it's it's a bit too much for my my liking. Like, I, I, see, I I didn't quite understand why it was necessary, but you're kind of convincing me a bit. However, I have noticed the things about it that I like because we've been using it on some stuff. And I like um, that it gives you some fetch methods yes, by default. they're so good. Like you can just find fe- all. Yeah, find all, right? <laughs> but the like, thing is, is that you can create that sort of stuff yourself. I, yeah, but I mean, you've got to write, like, you write why all of these you? No, but the thing is, is that I use, so one of the things that I reinventing the wheel. But w- one of the things that I did in progressions was use MoGenerator and provide my own templates so that I could, I could generate automatically generate those, and then yeah. I don't. I only ever had to write them once. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that's good. That's it's not cool. necessarily re- like all I was doing was basically just providing myself those shortcuts without having to add another no, no, dependency yeah, that's cool. to my code. Yep. 
because that's the sort of thing that you still have to look out for when you when you're writing this stuff. There's yeah. some other good ones. They give you like basic ones that you would normally have to write a predicate for. I think you can do like search by key and value. Yeah, you yep. can. Yep. Um, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. The one I really like is is set up auto migrating core data store, which only works in debug. But if you go and change your model, and if you didn't have magical record, the next time you ran your app, you would have to delete it before you rerun it. Yeah, otherwise it would crash. It would just crash. Whereas if you use that, I don't know, I could write this myself, but it would delete the existing store when it detects the model's changed and recreate it for you. So I yeah. have enjoyed using it. The one, um, the one thing I didn't like was mm-hmm. the fact that it filled my Xcode project with a bunch of warnings. Which is fixed. Which is fixed. I have to say thank you to Tony Arnold if he's listening. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you, Tony Arnold. He's a contributor to Magical Record, and I was whinging on Twitter. I think about that was the, the pod was out of date. Right. I think I think it was fixed on the develop branch, but not on the main. Right. Okay. Um. And so he pointed to how you can you can I didn't realize you can tell CocoaPods to source its pod from a different branch. Yes, you can. Get... CocoaPods is rather amazing. Yeah. So now actually, you know got... what else is amazing? This mm-hmm. is a great uh, your ability to segue. <laughs> <laughs> Expedited reviews are amazing. Yes, they are. So it's been a couple of weeks now, but it's been out for a while. And um, I did this thing. What's had, been out for a while? A, a ver- I, I had a version of GIF wrapped, right? So the, the, there was version 2.0.3 out on the store and it had like, I'd, obviously I'd made a few changes and done a few updates. Um, and then, and this is part of the reason why you should try and control the stack as much as you possibly can. Um, the provider that, that um, powers my search um, they are named Giphy or Jiffy or however you want to pronounce it. <laughs> um, they changed their API. Not very much. Just all they did was they changed the content type header that got that got returned with the content so that it no longer said that it was JSON and just said that it was plain text. Oh, that would break parsing. And that broke That's poor AF form. Networking's mm. parsing. It's yes, poor it form, not versioning their API. And so it is perform not versioning their API. And so what ended up happening was um obviously that broke search and it, it seemed to happen gradually. Um I started getting a few people commenting on it through reviews on oh. the App Store. <laughs> Don't you love that? Um and then like and it started happening more and more and more and I I, I would be able to like I'd look I'd do a search and it would work fine. I'm like what's there's nothing wrong. And so I'd search for some other stuff and that would still work. And I was like, oh, I don't understand. And then somebody sent me somebody sent me on Twitter. Um, thank you to that person. I should find them and thank them by name. I don't know if they will actually listen. Denise sent me a tweet with a screenshot of what they had searched for, which was brilliant because I could search for what they had actually searched and realized that it was broken. So I think what was happening there was that it was being like the the new stuff was being cached and sent through and so if you right, search for yeah. something that was cached good then it would still send it through mm-hmm. fine and otherwise and so eventually it got to the point where it was just happening with everything and um yeah so i basically i had to like i had to do something about it so i mm. put together a, a, a um an update which basically just basically turned off the um the the content type heading check yep um and so that would it would just par it just parses everything now, yeah. Um, regardless of what it gets back, and um, then if it breaks, then oh well. But 
and so I, I put it in. I put it in for um, and just let it go. And then Ben suggested that I actually ask for an expedited review. I've had an expedited review before on Gift Wrapped. I asked for an expedited review in the first update that came out because there was something that was breaking the entire app, and that was not good. But the thing is, is that it's really easy to actually ask for one. Yeah, <laughs> it's really easy. Like super easy. Um. That's why people are scared of them because it's so easy. I think people abuse them and then yeah, I've had I've certainly had a response from Apple which is okay this time, but don't ever ask us again because you're running out. Right. So the first time that I sent one, so version one point oh point one, I sent I asked for an expedited review to get this this bug fixed straight away, and less than twenty four hours later, it was like the the app the update was in the store. This is like less than twenty four hours after the app had even launched, mm. and. That was awesome. They they their response was yeah cool like it's you you've been granted your your wish your one wish, <laughs> um, use it wisely, and you know and so it just kind of yeah that that kind of all went and away. Could- the second one though, the second one was where they said that like I got the response from from Apple saying expedited reviews are not to be used. Yes, like you should for exceptional use circumstances. Them. Just, yeah, you okay. should. But I still them. argue that is an exceptional circumstance. Your app was broken and getting one star reviews. Yeah, yeah, I was getting a lot of one star reviews. I can see. I can completely see why Apple does that. Like expedited reviews are, are fantastic because it makes sense to have a mechanism by which developers can say, could you please review this as a matter of urgency? There are really compelling reasons why I want to get this version out. Right. But there's also makes sense for Apple to say, don't use that as like your standard procedure. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, if every app you ever submit, you're asking for an expedited review, then you're kind of doing something wrong. Mm. Well, that's the, and that's the thing. Uh, expedited reviews are really, really handy if you've got something that's majorly wrong. But if you're shipping something that's majorly wrong in everything, everything that you ship, then maybe you should look at your coding yeah. standards. Maybe you should listen to Mobile Couch more. <laughs> <laughs> um, Hang and, on. You know, <laughs> How but, does that work for me? You have to listen on the way home. I do. Yeah. Uh, it, it's also really handy if you've got kind of marketing deadlines where people have like booked media and. No, no, no. In those sorts of situations, you need to plan ahead, and I think, and like, I think that having to deal with dealing with um, like marketing people and that sort of thing, that's not Apple's problem. Yeah, um, it's it's your problem, and so I think in in, in situations like those, like I think that's that's not you don't cause for one. No, I think I think cause for one is when it's literally breaking and causing problems for a large percentage of people, and it was unforeseeable. That's your yeah. Your key I, I think criteria. I think yeah, it, it was unforeseeable. You didn't see it coming. It was yeah. it was something that didn't pop up during testing. Interesting that the case that you mentioned um, for GIF wrapped that the breaking API. When you were first describing the problem, I was sitting here all smug, thinking, "Aha, aha! This is a problem you could have avoided if you'd done something the way I've done it in my app." And then you went on, and I realized that no, I wouldn't avoid that problem. But I think I'll share my technique anyway. So share your technique with me. Um, I'm doing an app at the moment that deals with the back end uh, that I'm a bit worried about. Mm-hmm. Whether there there could potentially be changes to that back end that could break the app. Sure. Um, so to guard against that, I've basically written my code so that it's using a ground control to retrieve the your the service endpoints um, that it should request stuff from, uh, so that if anyone does break the API, um, I can just change a file on a server somewhere and tell it to get its data from somewhere else 
Right. And so gift wrap nearly nearly launched with that. I don't know if you guys remember during the beta, there was a at the very last minute there was an updated beta um, mm-hmm. that went out because what happened was I was waiting for the I was waiting for the API key from, from yeah um, the provider and um, it hadn't come through. It was taking ages. Like I've been waiting waiting for like two weeks. The app was completely done. Um, so I'm just waiting, like I'm just sitting there waiting and I couldn't submit because I need to put it in the code. And so what I did was I, um, I put, I put a thing in so that I could tell it like what the API key was, what the endpoint was. And that way I could, you know, if I needed to update it later, I could update it later. Mm. Um, and then at the very last minute that got pulled out because I got the API key and no longer needed it. Right. Um, I think it's kind of handy to have that point of view. The reason that I didn't pull that I li- didn't leave it in there is because it opened up a I th- I feel like it opened up a security vulnerability in the app which could be possibly utilized to uh, like if somebody hacked like got into my server and changed that endpoint I wouldn't necessarily know that they changed it um unless I was you know constantly monitoring the like the the file that was getting pulled. Yeah. And it was just sitting on like one of my like little servers that I've got set up, um, and you know if that server went down, then it, the app wouldn't know where it was supposed to be. Yeah. Looking so for the stuff. way I've approached it is I've got defaults in the app. Yep. So default endpoints that it will query for its data, and um, in the app delegate, when it's finished launching, it uses ground control to try and read more up to date settings right. from a remote location. To be fair, my version was hurriedly put in there to try and so I could try and get the app out yeah, um, yeah. in time um, and wasn't really well thought through which is why I pulled it out and I, I don't think it was I don't think it was worth leaving in there for, for just yeah. to be able to kind of handle it um, it would have probably saved me because I could have just you know made the changes to that file and it would have been well fine. so mine doesn't specify that you change what content type to expect right. back. But right. what I could have done was I could have pointed it towards my own server yeah. and changed that header yeah. and basically just yeah. basically so done that until I got an update. I've actually seen people do go so much further than that and actually write the, their API clients in such a way that it knows next to nothing about the API at all like and specify everything in settings. Like this is the endpoint and these are the key value pairs to get back. And this is the way you should map them to your own sort of object model. And yeah, so that basically the whole kind of client-server interaction can be configured at right. runtime, um, which I think is probably going way too far, but I can mm-hmm. kind of see see the benefits in it. Look, at the end of the day, I think I think this is one of those the situations where it's kind of given me the kick in, not necessarily kick in the pants about it, but to, it's it's kind of given me the um, the desire to provide my own service not for like a web service like like as big as jiffy giffy whatever um but to provide my own service that can be used within the app yeah sure and i mean (sighs) there's no reason why i can't do that and utilize the resources that i have with now with gift wrapped Mm. to improve on that in the same way that they've they've improved on theirs Mm. It's just one of those things where I think providing like owning your own stack is is really really helpful, and that can mean like owning all of the part of the API that you use, um, as well as like owning, you know, owning all of the things that it's, uh, you know, knowing all the things that it's running on, understanding it all, all of it, and you know, having, you know, not not using too many dependencies and all that sort of thing. Um, 
And when you're working on your own projects, it's fun as well. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> it's it's lots of fun to try new things, to write mm. new things, to you know rewrite the reel just so that you understand what the wheel is. Yeah, no, I'm not convinced. <laughs> How low do you go with that? Do you like go down to you know decouple yourself from the operating system? No. Yeah, I like to write, write your own. Line, I've, write your own file system. I've, I've never done that. I don't understand it well. Write your own to networking layer. <laughs> but I certainly have. Write your own compiler. I re-implemented TCP/IP because I didn't think it was good enough. He wrote his own <laughs> C string library. Oh, don't we that remember was there, was a, there was an episode all of it that was named <laughs> that, was that. different <laughs> the string was too heavy i just mm. needed a one particular thing <laughs> but i think the, the end of the day like uh, i mean that's that's kind of a me thing not mm. necessarily like uh, just because i'm going to do that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody has to but it's think- one of those things where you should definitely you have to think about it yeah and it's like because the troubles that i've run into with with gift wrapped and the reason that i needed the expedited review in the first place was because of possibly not necessarily thinking about it and also the fact that it's a third-party service that i can't control at all yeah and so you either have to put in methods to go around it which is to do things like you know uh ground control do use ground control to to you know map it to whatever you want or or whatever or you provide your own in some in some manner, and can it be as simple as just putting a proxy in the middle mm. that that you know basically translates? Yeah, and then that gives you flexibility that in the future, if you want to do more with it, you can. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think that makes sense. But I think it definitely needs. It definitely kind of suggests that you, you shouldn't just rely on expedited reviews to actually do to to you know to fix the bugs in the first place. You should mm. be really thinking about them beforehand. Yeah. That being the case, there's always going to be stuff that you miss. We're not like you know we're not supermen or anything and even even superman misses stuff every now and then but you know the the fact of the matter is is that if you do spend time on your app and spend time thinking about how it's designed how it's supposed to work how this is going to like your decisions are going to affect you know other parts of the app um i think that's like you're going to negate most of the problems that you'll run into in the future yeah yeah hey uh, how are we going for time can we squeeze one more topic in? We yes, yeah. we can. <laughs> is it beacons? It is beacons. <laughs> what? Um, How did I know? I can't stop thinking about beacons. So you may uh, you may recall from previous episodes where I may have mentioned iBeacons. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. One of the things I was doing was buying myself a version of every beacon I could get hold of. Um, so I've been doing a few apps using iBeacons. Um, and finding that there's a there's a really big difference between sort of the initial experimentation with beacons and then doing something in the sort of real world. Right. And one of the greatest challenges there, I think there's a bunch of challenges, uh, but one of the biggest ones is that, um, you know, the whole concept of beacons is basically using a radio signal from a Bluetooth low energy device as a way of, making some assumptions or guesses about how close you are to to that thing. Um, and that all hinges on the signal, the strength of the signal that you receive. But what I've noticed in sort of real-world usage is that the signal varies just so much. Well, you talk, I think we talked about this when we were talking about yeah. beacons on that, that episode. Does. We so had one, one the, on a hill. One yep. of the problems was that, yeah, you had like some beacons were stronger than others. Yeah. Um, but also like the, the signal strength was how, is how you determine location. And so yep. the, based on the signal strength, your location was, your moving, location all was moving all over the place. Yep. And even, even simpler 
setups where you're sort of saying, look, I'm not trying to give myself a precise location in, in three-dimensional space. I'm just trying to say what beacon am I closest to? What point of interest am I nearest? Sure. If you're in an environment with two or three beacons, um, the signals from those can fluctuate such that that you're at, at standing in a single spot and it appears that you're closest to one and then the signals all fluctuate and now without having moved, it now appears that you're closest to another for about two seconds until that drops off and then you're back closest to the other one again. And so if you're doing something like displaying content based on the nearest beacon, your user interface can end up being really like... Jumpy. Jumpy. <laughs> so I, there are so many different things that impact on a beacon's signal strength. The environment, obviously. So if you have a beacon in one environment and the same beacon in a different environment, it's gonna the signals are going to behave differently. Right. Um, some things are just how... A given environment may change over time. So you've got beacons in a room and then a bunch of people walk into the room and people's bodies all absorb the radio signal. And it makes a massive difference. Yeah. So Ooh. suddenly you could go from having a reading that says you're quite close to a beacon to having no signal coming from it at all and you haven't moved. It's just a, a group of people have walked between you and, and the beacon. Um, so also a lot of where that- you are in the room makes a difference. Like I did a, we did a really simple test the other day we had a beacon on a wall, say a 10 by 10 empty room, it's just walls. Um, the signal 10 meters away because it was on a wall was actually stronger than the signal from the middle of the room, which should have been closer to the beacon. And that would have been because it would have been reflected Reflect- off reflecting. the surfaces. Yeah. Hmm. So there's so many different things. But um, I guess what I've been wanting to do is to try and isolate all of these things, to try and say, okay, well, how much of the variability in the signal is down to the environment? How much is it down to things coming in and out of the environment? How much is it down to the actual beacon hardware itself? Um, so on that regard, how much is down to the beacon hardware itself? I thought I'd get hold of a bunch of different beacon hardware and run some controlled tests. Um, so basically, I've tested so far uh, the Enso Locate beacons that I first started with, Qualcomm Gimbal beacons, um, particularly Series 10. So they've got a couple of different models. Um, Nomi beacons, uh, BlueCat and radius rad beacon. Um, and basically, I did a simple test where put a single beacon in a room, uh, tried to get all other radio signals out of the room as, in, as far as I could, so I only had one beacon at a time and turned Wi-Fi and Bluetooth off on all the other phones that were nearby, um, and then stood at a, a set distance from the beacon and measured the signal strength we're getting for 30 seconds, uh, and then repeated it with each beacon so multiple beacons from each manufacturer and then multiple manufacturers and basically just measured what signal do you receive at at the same distance each time and how does that signal fluctuate and so the two things i was trying to test was which beacon is there a difference first of all i was trying to answer the question is there a difference from one manufacturer to the next or is it just that the difference is from a particular beacon of one you know like irrespective of the manufacturer, is there greater variability just from one unit to the next? Or is it something that you can sort of group all the beacons from one manufacturer and say there are differences in the brand? Um, and if there is a difference, I was looking to, I guess, optimize two things. Is I was wanting um, beacons that have a stronger signal so that I could detect them from further away mm-hmm. um, and beacons that had a more consistent signal. So ones, ideally, that fluctuate less if possible. Um, and so we measured all of these beacons, and basically the results were really 
surprising. There is a big difference from one brand to the next. So where we had multiple beacons of the same brand, uh, we measured them all and they kind of more or less performed similarly to other beacons from that brand. And then from one brand to the next, there were pretty big changes. So the Enso Locate had the strongest signal, but they also had one of the most variable signals. So at the distance we were measuring, they jumped from 72, Ben, you've got to help me with this unit here, DBM. Decibel milliwatts, I think. Excellent. Minus 72 decibel milliwatts to minus 59 decibel milliwatts, which I don't actually know what that is. Huge, huge difference. I I think you can just say DBM. (laughs) DBM. It's a measure of the signal strength. That's as as complex as my knowledge gets. 70 to 72 to 59 is a big difference. Because it's a logarithmic scale. Yeah. Yeah. So that's huge. Um, Hmm. So they were really, really uh, quite variable. Um, The Qualcomm gimbals uh, were the clear winners of the lots that I've tested so far. I've been really impressed with them. Um, They had a really strong signal, so they were almost the strongest signal, but importantly, they had a really consistent signal. So they stayed in between minus 72 and minus 69. Um, from the three that we tested. Right, so that's that's relatively seconds. strong, but also relatively stable. Yeah, exactly. And, and they're cheap. $5 And relatively each. cheap. Wow. And tiny. And so much cheaper than the ones that They ones only that have three-month battery life, though, which yeah. is lower than pretty much everyone else. Right. But so you the, can replace them, right? Uh, yeah, they are. They're coin cell batteries. The Series 10 uh, have got about three-month battery life, and they're $5 each. The Series... 30, I think, is the next Which one. Which are the professional level ones. Have a, like a two-year battery life and a $20 each. They're also limited in supply. Yeah, I haven't been able to get hold of any yet, but uh, would, would like to. Um, so I'll keep. Um, I'll publish a blog post with this data if anyone's interested. We're going to get Estimote in there as well. Yeah. Because everyone likes Estimote. And eventually um, probably review all of these beacons in other regards as well. So having gone through this process with them of just testing the signal strength and characteristics... There's a bunch of other things like um, they all seem to sort of come with different management tools. Um, and I think sort of, again, in a real world rollout, the management tool you use is probably going to have a big part in whether or not a particular beacon works for you or not. Sure. Um, so I'll probably test a little bit around, you know, review the form factor and the management tools as well as the signal strength characteristics. But yeah, so far I'm leaning personally towards recommending the Qualcomm gimbal for sort of the next project I'm working on. Fair enough. So if anybody would like to read any of the things that we've talked about today, we've, I've, I've uh, got a few notes that the boys are going to put in and uh, you can jump onto our website and you can read said notes, probably link, read the things they're linked to. That's probably going to be more interesting. To find those, you just jump onto our website, mobilecouch.co forward slash 31. If you would like to get in touch with us and you would like to tell us to talk about any of the topics that we discussed today in more detail, then that would be awesome. Like beacons. <laughs> We've talked about beacons. <laughs> well, you might want to tell us never to mention the word again. <laughs> if you would like to do either or, you can get in touch with us and tell us. Uh, you can also t- talk, like, f- tell us your feedback on the things that we have said. Uh, jump onto our website, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact, uh, and that will send us an email. Well, once you fill out the form and submit it, that will send us an email, and then we'll read it, and it'll be awesome. You can also talk to us individually. Jake is on Twitter as jmcmullen. That's J M A C M U L L I N. 
And can I just say at this point, thank you to all my new followers. I think it must be this show. People just keep following me on Twitter. It's just your... It's Random your, iOS developers and things. It's so, your wonderful personality, Jake. Hello. Nice to meet you all. Ben is also on Twitter as Ben Trengrove. That's B-E-N-T-R-E-N-G-R-O-V-E. I don't think I have many new followers. Jake's oh. followers, come follow me, please. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I shouldn't have mentioned that. Okay. <laughs> and I am Jelly Bean Soup. I have a, I have a few... Like we're about the same. We're probably about the same. But Jake's, Jake's the famous Jake's one. Jake's the famous one. He, everybody knows who he's... <laughs> when I our think, band breaks up, he'll go off and have his solo yeah, career. Yeah, yeah. And we'll just be like, we'll do a reunion in 20 years. And and we'll have like, one of at least one of us, the two of us, will have died. Does that mean... Um, and the other one will be like a drug addict or something. You're the Ronan Keating of Boyzone. Right. I was going to go the Beatles, and I was going to say, does that mean Caleb is like that fifth Beatle who left before, <laughs> you know, back before in Germany? Who was it? Yes. that That's, yeah. yeah. Sorry, Caleb. So, thanks everyone for listening. We look forward to talking to you again in another couple of weeks. It has been an amazing episode. We will see you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.